This is Mrs. Lasseter's list of AP Biology tips. Welcome. Thanks for tuning in. If you're listening, you're probably one of my AP Biology students, or you're just interested in learning more about the AP Biology exam. In this seventh episode, we'll go through the third of the four big ideas. Now remember, in most classes, you probably don't go through the big ideas in order throughout the year. Instead, they're probably mixed throughout different units, depending on how your teacher teaches the course of AP Biology. Now, big idea three involves a lot of information about genes, regulation, signaling, systems, and communication. So big idea is varied and complex, and like Big Idea 2, it sometimes includes a lot of detail you might not have seen in regular biology. So some of this information are things that you are seeing for the first time. Now remember, within the Big Ideas are essential knowledges and learning objectives, which you can review in the AP Biology course description online. If you haven't done so already, go to the AP Biology course homepage and review the entire curriculum framework, or just scroll down to the appendix with the big ideas and the essential knowledges and the enduring understandings and skim that if you don't have time to read through the entire thing. So what is Big Idea 3? Big Idea 3 from the College Board is living systems store, retrieve, transmit, and respond to information essential to life processes. So you could sum this up as genes and information and maybe communication as well. Today we're just going to cover some of the main topics in Big Idea 3, mention how they've shown up on past FRQs, and talk about some strategies for answering questions related to Big Idea 3 on the AP Biology exam. Let's get started. The first part of Big Idea 3 is about DNA. So you need to know that DNA, and sometimes RNA, is going to be our main source of heritable information. Genetic information is going to be stored and then passed other generations through these molecules, these DNA molecules, or sometimes RNA molecules. Now, it's good to keep in mind the differences between the information that's passed in eukaryotic and prokaryotic organisms. So our prokaryotes or non-eukaryotic organisms are going to have circular chromosomes in general, while our eukaryotic organisms have several linear chromosomes in general. Now, prokaryotic organisms, viruses, not living organisms according to most, and eukaryotes can also contain plasmids, which are these small uh, extra chromosomal circular pieces of double-stranded DNA, which are very useful in things like genetic transformation when we're doing our biotechnology experiments. The proof that DNA is actually what uh, transmits this genetic information from one individual or one cell to another came about through many important experiments, and you should be familiar with uh, the experiments that led these scientists to reach these conclusions. So this includes uh, Watson, Crick, Wilkins, and Franklin, knowing what their what research they did to eventually propose the structure of DNA, this double-stranded structure, which we've learned over the years is not as simple as a double helix, depending on how the genes are being regulated, um, but we'll get to that later. The Avery, Mickley, and McCarty experiments, and then of course the Hersey Chase experiment as well. So sometimes you might see on the AP Biology exam description of a type of experiment that is mentioned here, and then you'll have to be able to reach the best conclusion from the results of the experiment. You probably won't be asked to detail every step of the experiment. For example, they won't ask you, please tell us every step in the Hersey Chase experiment and what was concluded, but you may have to apply that knowledge in some other way. So you should be familiar with it and you should be able to understand what was done and how they concluded what they did. Now replication comes in in this big idea right here. Um, you may want to review a brief explanation of replication. So remember that we have helicase unzipping our double-stranded DNA and then we have a leading strand that's produced continuously in the five to three prime direction uh, and then we have our lagging strand which is produced in pieces. These pieces are called Okazaki fragments and then we need RNA primers 
and these primers are removed and replaced. And then we have DNA ligase, which is going to fuse these fragments together. So be sure that you could model this, maybe draw it out on a piece of paper, describe it to a friend. Also, you should think about how the genomes of something like a retrovirus, such as HIV, can be incorporated into the host genome or the genome of the host cell. Remember, for retroviruses, these are RNA viruses. They use reverse transcriptase, which uh, ASE enzyme, and it pretty much does what it sounds like to create a DNA version of their genome. And so they do this single strand to double strand conversion. So think about that when we are talking about our retroviruses. Now, remember your base pairing rules, A pairs with T or U, depending on RNA or DNA. And of course, C pairs with G. Our purines, G and A, are going to have that double ring structure. Pyridamines, C, T, and U have single ring structures. And remember that our genetic information is going to be transmitted based on a series of nucleotides into a gene sequence through protein synthesis. Each of those three nucleotides is going to correspond to a specific amino acid because it's a codon and be familiar with how protein synthesis works, how to interpret a codon chart, and all that fun. Now, we get a little bit more complex when we start talking about protein synthesis and protein ex gene expression in AP biology because we know now there are many modifications that can happen to a gene. It does not just simply go start, gene, stop. We have a lot of other things that can happen before we end up with our final protein or a degraded protein. So remember that RNA polymerase is going to read the DNA molecule to synthesize our complementary mRNA molecules, and then those mRNA molecules are going to be determining the order of the amino acids in the protein. Of course, in eukaryotic cells, our mRNA transcript is going to undergo a long series of enzyme-regulated modifications. So a good question, 2016 FRQ question 4, we have a figure of uh, mRNA transcript that is originally 15 kilobases long, but then the mature mRNA is 7 kilobases, and what you're asked to do is describe the modification that resulted in this a kilobase difference in the mature mRNA. And so something you could say is that this is happening in the nucleus and this is RNA processing where the introns are being removed and only the exons are going to exist in the final transcript. And this happens a lot in gene expression. Now in 2012, you can go back to question three to review different types of modifications such as RNA splicing, repressor proteins, methylation. So you can review that and see if you can go through and talk about how each of those can change our transcription or translation or expression of these genes in the cells. All right. So again, if you want to review the steps of protein synthesis, you can go way back to question number four on FRQ 2009. That's a good question about DNA, gene expression, and protein synthesis. Make sure that you are familiar with all the genetic engineering techniques that can manipulate the heritable information of DNA and, of course, RNA. So some of these might include electrophoresis, our plasmid transformations, uh, so transforming bacteria or other cells using plasmids, um, restriction enzyme analysis of DNA, and PCR. Now, each of these you should have gone over in class, but if not, I have videos on a lot of these. Once again, on the AP exam, you may not be asked to describe the procedures or the protocols for doing each of these things step by step, but you may be shown a similar type of technique and then asked to interpret how it's done or what would happen if they changed it in some way. A good example of this type of question would be our comment assay question from 2017, and I've already talked about it in this podcast podcast once. But I think it's an excellent question. A lot of students were really mad about it because it was something that obviously was not in the course description. You were presented with this new biotechnology technique and you had to interpret what would happen based on the information provided. Now, with your knowledge of how electrophoresis works and the properties of DNA, you should have probably been able to interpret this question correctly. 
But a lot of students freaked out because they saw something they did not recognize. So again, you will see information you have not studied on the AP Biology exam, and you will be tested on how you can interpret that information and use knowledge that you do have to draw conclusions. So again, really encourage you to go try that common assay question. It probably, a common assay will probably not show up on the exam this year, but it's a good thing to practice. There are some more FRQs that reference some of these biotechnology techniques. There's a 2009 question, number one, about transgenic biotechnology. There is a question from 2007 about electrophoresis and restriction mapping, number four from 2007. And then in 2016, question number six, we have PCR of DNA fragments, so you can go and practice those. Now, you should be able to identify examples of certain things like a genetically engineered product, genetically modified foods, cloned animals, think of something other than Dolly the sheep, please, um, pharmaceutical use of biotechnology, and transgenic animals for the exam. So make sure you have examples of each of those on your brain before you take take the exam. All right, so also in Big Idea 3, we're going to go over cell cycle and, of course, mitosis and meiosis. Now, a good thing to practice would be a mitosis and meiosis Venn diagram. Think about the differences between this asexual replication and then preparation of haploid cells um, for uh, reproduction. Some of the big things that you should remember from meiosis are crossing over, of course, happens during prophase 1, and, of course, all the things that can lead to genetic variation. So this is very common on questions. So remember, in meiosis, we have sexual reproduction leading to genetic variation through things like random fertilization, independent assortment of chromosomes, crossing over during prophase one. Now we can also have genetic variation from other things outside of meiosis, such as um, within the population level, we can have mutations, we can have introductions of new individuals, we can have mutagens, or we can have a viral infection of a genome, and then the host will take that new DNA and transmit it to its offspring. There's a short DNA replication and genetic variation question from 24 14, question number eight. Of course, within the cell cycle, you can go back and review your labs that had to do with cancer and, of course, Henrietta Lacks. So now we're going to dip into genetics. Remember that it took a lot of experiments to get to the point where scientists were able to realize DNA is the hereditary material in all cells. Mendel figured out that there was some transforming factor, and he was this Austrian monk, bred garden peas, and he brought an experimental and quantitative approach to inheritance. But of course, it took later experiments to determine DNA was that thing. It was the hereditary material. So make sure you're able to do things like a regular cross, be able to recognize complete dominance, incomplete dominance, codominance, and sex link traits. In 2016, question number seven, we have a good genetics question to practice. Remember how to do a test cross. Remember those big old dihybrid crosses where we have cross between two individuals that are hybrid for two different traits and produces four types of gamete. And remember in our practices, we saw questions, for example, like what is the probability of getting offspring with the genotype little a, little a, big B, little B, little C, little C, big D, little D, big E, big E, and then you have the parents. And what you need to do is just determine the probability of each individual trait and then multiply them together because the inheritance of unlinked genes are independent events, just like different flips of a coin. So you would just take the probability of each trait and then multiply. And this, of course, works for unlinked genes only, but it's pretty easy. Now, remember with recombination, we had to do recombination mapping. And generally, genes located on different chromosomes are going to assort independent and have a high recombination frequency, so generally above 50%, we say genes are linked if they have a recombination frequency that is less than 50%. So recombination, again, is during crossing over, so prophase one of meiosis, genes on chromosomes are going to switch places, and crossover is random, but the likelihood that we have a crossover event will increase if those genes are farther apart. So genes that are close together are more likely to stick together and not switch places, so keep that in mind. You should be able to 
construct a gene linkage map. So you use crossover frequencies and construct uh, an order of which the genes would occur. And of course, the distance between the genes. So generally, you want to start with the genes that are the farthest apart first. So in an example, you might say genes B and C are, there's a 45% recombination frequency. So those would be the farthest apart and those would be placed on the ends of your map and you would just put it in a line. And then you're gonna solve it like a puzzle determining the positions of the other genes. And remember, generally given percentages for the recombination frequencies, but those are gonna to equate to map units. So map units are generally gonna say one map unit is 1% of recombination frequency. So if genes B and C were 45%, they had a 45% recombination combination frequency, we can say they are 45 map units apart. All right, let's talk briefly about genetic disorders. We have certain genetic disorders that are attributed to the inheritance of single gene traits or chromosomal changes like non-disjunction. So a very common non-disjunction disorder would be trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. Some other non-disjunction disorders could be Turner syndrome or Kleinfelter sy syndrome. Okay, we have different ploidy problems as well. We want to think about how changes in chromosome number can occur by the addition of uh, a chromosome or part of a chromosome that's aneuploidy. The loss of an entire set of chromosomes could be monoploidy or the gain of one or more complete sets of chromosomes is euploidy. So we have other human genetic disorders that are caused by a mutation on any chromosome that is not a sex chromosome. So these are autosomal disorders. So we could have something like Huntington's that's autosomal dominant. Autosomal recessive disorders might be uh, Tay-Sachs, uh, cystic fibrosis, PKU, sickle cell anemia. So have a few in mind and also recognize their patterns of inheritance as well. Chloroplasts and mitochondria are also going to randomly assort. They are organelles. Uh, they're going to be assorted randomly into their gametes and daughter cells. So remember there is DNA in those organelles. And so we have certain traits determined by chloroplast and mitochondrial DNA that are not going to follow our Mendelian inheritance rules. So keep that in mind. Now remember in animals, we're going to have mitochondrial DNA transmitted by the egg and not the sperm. Uh, remember the egg is much larger than the sperm as well. And when we go through oogenesis, we actually produce one egg and three polar bodies. So the traditional four gametes that we would see in a traditional meiosis map does not apply. But generally our mitochondrial traits are going to be inherited from the mother. All right, let's talk a little bit about gene regulation. We have differential gene expression leading to cells specializing in different ways. So remember, a regulatory gene is a sequence of DNA that's, that's going to code for a regulatory protein or a piece of RNA, and we can have positive and negative control mechanisms regulating gene expression in bacteria and viruses as well. So we can have specific genes turned on by an inducer and genes that are inhibited because of a repressor. And remember, these are some smaller molecules that are going to interact with these regulatory proteins or sequences. Now, eukaryotic gene expression can involve uh, regulatory genes or elements or transcription factors uh, in different ways, and just transcription factors are going to bind to specific DNA sequences or other regulatory proteins. And then again, these can be activators or repressors, where activators are going to increase the expression of the gene, repressors decrease that expression. We have operons as well, so don't forget those. You can go back and review how operons behave. We talked about them a little bit in Big Idea. Two. Remember, these are generally a prokaryotic mechanism for gene regulation. Remember that we have signal transmission between cells that's going to also mediate gene expression. So our cytokines can regulate gene expression for different parts of the cell cycle for cell replication and division. And then we have cells that send signals between other cells that will mediate function. So this is a common example we see in yeast for yeast mating. And then we can have morphogens for different cell development. Of course, P53 activity can result in cancer. 
course, Hox genes can have an effect on development. And we'll get to signal transduction pathways in just a bit. Of course, you don't need to memorize a bunch of different development genes, but for example, you may be exposed to a different gene and be told the function and then have to explain the result or the explanation of what would happen if this gene had an increased function or decreased function. So for example, there's a gene called SED3 in embryonic neuron precursors of C. elegans, our elegant worm, our model organism. And what it does is it codes for a family of protease enzymes that are going to play really important roles in programmed cell death in apoptosis. So if you were asked what you thought would happen if that gene was overexpressed, what you could say was that in these cell precursors that are going to be neurons, so our neuron precursors, these might undergo apoptosis and then we wouldn't have any neurons in the organism. So that could be a good explanation for that particular overexpression. Remember, of course, that changes in genotype obviously result in changes in phenotype. A mutation can be beneficial or detrimental depending on the environmental conditions. And of course, the environment is constantly changing, so there is no one perfectly evolved organism in any environment. Now, we have lots of processes that can increase genetic variation. Remember that we have errors in replication. We have horizontal uptake of DNA in prokaryotic cells, and of course, we have sexual reproduction. Now we can have viruses that are going to replicate in a certain way and increase genetic variation as well because our viral infection can introduce new genes into a host, so that increases genetic variation as well. Now for viruses, you should be familiar with different types of viruses and recognize that viruses can replicate in different cycles. And remember, we have the lytic cycle and the lysogenic cycle. And some of the reasons that we have higher rates of mutation in viruses is that they can reproduce quickly and RNA viruses are going to lack these replication error checking mechanisms, and so we have higher rates of mutation there as well. Now, remember again, HIV is a really good well-studied system. This is in your course description where we have rapid evolution of a virus and the host is going to contribute to the pathogenicity of the viral infection, so how infectious it is. And I know my students are familiar with their viruses they did for their project. Go, go back and review the different types of viruses, the different lytic versus lysogenic cycles, and of course how vaccines work, because that is a very common question that will pop up on the AP exam. All right, let's move on to cell communication, which is one of my favorite topics. And remember that cell communication processes are going to have common features among lots of different organisms that can be used as a piece of evidence to reflect a common or shared evolutionary history or a common ancestor. So let's talk about signal transduction pathways. If you want to pull up AP Biology FRQ from 2013, question number eight, we have a great diagram of a signal transduction pathway. It is a hormone signaling pathway, and you are asked to explain the role of each numbered step in regulating the target gene expression. So step one is in this particular FRQ, we're looking at kind of a line that's our membrane, and then we have a larger molecule we're assuming is some sort of receptor protein, and then a smaller molecule that's a shape that's attaching to the outside of that. And what you could say here is we have a hormone or our ligand binding to a receptor that is going to initiate this signal transduction, or you could just say this is signal reception. Now in step two, we have a shape and then an arrow and a different type of shape and another arrow. And what we have here is the real start of our transduction pathway. So we have our 
signal cascade that is going to amplify and transfer the signal from the plasma membrane to the nucleus or whatever uh, or whatever other effector within the cell that it needs to get to. And remember, these signal cascades can be extremely complex and very long. All right, and then in step three, we finally go through the nuclear membrane. You can see there's little holes in there, and we have transcription or expression of our target genes uh, that is going to be stimulated or repressed depending on whatever the signal is. So remember that when a ligand interacts with the receptor protein, it's going to cause some sort of conformational change in the receptor, resulting in the activation of this transduction pathway in the cell. So our cellular response could be anything from gene expression to protein activity to apoptosis. But recognize that the three steps, reception, transduction, and response, are going to be really important within our cell signaling pathways. Remember, there are internal signaling molecules as well, for example, our cyclic AMP or CAMP, that's going to activate our various catabolic and metabolic pathways. Again, are things to remember about pathways. One, characterized by a signal, a transduction, and a response. These are highly specific and regulated, and one signal molecule can cause a cascade effect, releasing thousands of molecules in a cell, and these pathways evolved from a common ancestor millions of years ago. So if you want to talk about effects of changes in pathways, there is a good question from 2010, question number one, about homeostasis and cell signaling. There is another one from 2017, question number three, about a plant hormone. And this is another question that brings in your codon chart if you need more practice with this. But remember, you should be familiar with some different endocrine signals, so different hormones, recognize their gland or cell group of origin, and then their effect on the human body, things like the human growth hormone, which comes from the pituitary gland, is going to stimulate cell division. Estrogen comes from our ovaries, affects the menstrual, menstrual or reproductive cycle. Testosterone originates in the testes. It's going to affect our secondary sex characteristics. And insulin comes from the pancreas and has to do with our glucose homeostasis. Now, signal transduction, of course, is how we get a signal that's converted into a cellular response and our signal cascades relay signals from receptors to cell targets and we can amplify those. You should be familiar with things like our ligand-gated ion channels, our second messengers like cyclic GMP, cyclic AMP, calcium ions. Okay, and of course, when signal transduction is blocked or defective, we, we can have disease or death as a non-functioning signaling transduction pathway or cancer, or some sort of neurological disease, and how drugs can actually block some of these pathways as well, such as antihistamines or birth control drugs. Now, if we take a step back and we go up several levels of organization, we can talk about how individuals can act on information and communicate it to others. So organisms exchange information with each other in response to uh, changes in the environment and also internal changes, which can change the behavior. We can talk about predator warnings or protection of young or avoidance responses or flight or fight or flight responses. Responses. And of course, communication occurs through various mechanisms. So there are signals or cues or behaviors that individuals can present to other organisms to hopefully result in reproductive success. So these can be things like coloration in flowers or territorial markings or uh, audible signals or chemical signals uh, for a variety of reasons. So bird songs, bee dances, of course, certain pheromones as well. And of course, natural selection is going to favor the behaviors, whether innate or learned that are going to increase our reproductive fitness and survival of the organisms. Okay, we're almost at the end, and we're going to talk about the nervous system, which is another type of communication within the body. So animals have nervous systems that are going to detect 
external signals as well as internal signals and integrate information, hopefully produce responses as well. There's a short question on the nervous system from 2015 that is number question number seven. Um, you can take a look at that. And then there's another question that's shorter from 2014 about a reflex arc in the nervous system and how it can be an evolutionary advantage as well. Make sure you know the parts of a neuron and how that specialized cell relates to function of receiving and transmitting signals. Uh, make sure you can diagram it and label the different parts. Make sure you can diagram and uh, identify the different steps within an action potential, that spike, um, and then the refractory period, and then we get to the arresting membrane potential as well. Recognize that different parts of your brain have different functions. You do not need to know what these functions are, so you don't have to memorize all the brain parts or uh, detail the development of the nervous system, but just recognize that, for example, damage to the forebrain could re result in a personality change like we saw with, with the famous Phineas Gage case. All right, that is a really quick rundown of Big Idea 3. We'll be picking up soon with Big Idea 4. Thank you guys for listening. It's getting close to the AP Biology exam. Good luck with your studying. AP Biology is a trademark registered by the College Board, which is not affiliated with and does not endorse this podcast. Thanks. Thanks.